The flight deck is made possible by the generous donors supporting the Museum of Flight. You can support this podcast and the Museum of Flight's other initiatives across the United States and the world by visiting museumofflight.org slash podcast. Hello and welcome to The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I am your host, Sean Mobley. Today we are starting part one of a two-part story featuring Museum of Flight docent Peggy Phillips. Peggy is a retired United States Air Force colonel with over 5,000 hours logged in C-141 and C-17 transport aircraft. She was one of the first women who earned her wings from the Air Force, and so far as many of the public knew at the time, they were the first women to fly for the United States military. Listeners to the flight deck know that there was another group of women who flew for the military 30 years prior, the Women Air Service Pilots, or WASP, in World War II. When the WASP heard that Peggy and her colleagues were the, quote, first women to fly for the military, they made their presence known. And if you want some background on the WASP program, go way back in our archives to episode two of the flight deck, where I had a conversation with one of our volunteers who specializes in that particular program. If you haven't heard of the WASP program before, I'd highly recommend listening to that one before listening to this one because we don't spend a lot of time explaining it in this episode. But either way, in today's episode, Peggy discusses the relationships forged between these two groups of distinct firsts and the power of mentorship between women blazing new trails through the skies. I'm an Air Force brat. My dad was in the Air Force, but he was um, security police and enlisted. And so I didn't really have much exposure to airplanes or flying. I do distinctly remember in third grade thinking I wanted to be an astronaut because in the 60s, everybody wanted to be an astronaut. And shockingly learning that, well, you had to be a test pilot in order to do that, and you had to be a fighter pilot, and oh, by the way, women weren't able to do that. At that point, decided to become a school teacher because that was still kind of what women did at that time. And uh, as time went on, I didn't really have mentors for flying and didn't consider that you could be an astronaut by being an engineer or any of that sort of thing. Went on to college to become a school teacher. And uh, as oftentimes happened with women, met a guy who was also an Air Force pilot at McGuire Air Force Base. And this is in the mid-70s. And the year I graduated from college in 1976 was the year that the Air Force began to admit women into the Air Force pilot training program. He mentioned that to me, but I was off to save the world. I was going to teach first grade, and that was my goal. And after a couple of years, it just lured me back. And I filled out the application, and somehow my recruiter lost my package about three times. And if you think back to those days, it was carbon paper days. So every time I had to fill out a brand new application, there was no fax or um, copy machines or any of that kind of thing. So 
um, was selected in 1979 uh, to go to pilot training and taught first grade up till December 21st. And then starting in January, I was off at flight screening program and then went to um, pilot training after that. I went the road of the reserves, the U.S. Air Force Reserves. And in that program, you had to find a unit that would sponsor you through the pilot training program. So that meant because I was near McGuire Air Force Base, they had three reserve units. And I went interviewed with the reserve units. And the 702nd was the unit that sponsored me. And at that time, I was the first female pilot that they had sponsored through pilot training. So it was a little overwhelming in that everyone has to work hard to go through pilot training. Um, it's not an easy program for most. Not everyone's a natural pilot. But then you add that other piece that everybody is you look different <laughs> and you're the only one, <laughs> you know. So it, I think on some level, even though you're still trying to just work hard and to do well, you also have this other piece that you're representing something different as well. Why did you choose to go reserves? It was probably somewhat selfish of me because having grown up in the military, uh, I knew what active duty was and at that point I was already 25 years old and the pilot training commitment once you graduate from pilot training you know and initially it was six then it was eight and then 10 year commitment so I knew that with the reserves I could both serve and also do a civilian life as well as opposed to full-time active duty. So you joined in about the third cycle of this, correct? When I graduated, I was the 75th woman to get earn my wings through the Air Force. The first two classes of women were a group of 10. They initially had a group of 20, but the first 10 were nine active duty and one reservist. And the second group of 10 were nine active duty and one guard. Because the Air Force couldn't decide that women actually would be able to be successful, they made that first class go through their entire year before they brought on the next group of 10. And then after that, there were twos and threes as time went on in every class. When I graduated from pilot training, there were three of us out of 60, three women out of 60 who earned their wings during that. And that was in 1981. It was very interesting because as Many people know there were the women Air Force service pilots during World War II, and they did not get recognition post-World War II for their service, and they weren't considered veterans at that point, or, um, you know, they were basically, oh, thanks, you know, on your way you go. So when it became more popular and information was coming out that, oh, the military services are now going to accept women into pilot training, and these are the first women to fly military, the WASPs were still around. And they were in their 50s, 60s, and they began to realize that their place in history was maybe not recognized. And so they had had reunions and they had been getting together. Well, they, in 1977, began to seek recognition and obtained recognition as veteran status in 1979. So as the Air Force started bringing in women, which was in 1976, 
the wasps were very cognizant of the fact that unless you band together, your voice sometimes gets lost. So there were a couple of wasps who reached out to some of the early pilots from pilot training to try to mentor us and to try to guide us. And in 1983, we formed a group. So the wasps were a finite group of women, and they didn't want necessarily reasonably so. They didn't want us to be part of their group because that was a whole different organization, but they wanted to help us start our group. And so in 1983, uh, we formed the women. um, In the beginning, it was the Women Military Pilots Association. Well, there's also rated. So rated means you earn your wings and um, you're an officer. There were navigators. Well, when you were the Pilots Association, well, then that kind of left out the navigators. So within a couple of years, we changed the name of the organization to Women Military Aviators. And we had a couple of WASPs on our board, as well as current uh, military pilots. And it helped to give us voice. And a lot of changes ended up taking place in those early years. So they reached out to us, they sponsored us, and we got together with them for conferences, which was so much fun. I can't even begin to tell you. It was like this mutual admiration society because we were in awe of what these women had done during World War II. I mean, can you imagine these women, every one of them without exception, were spunky, they were smart, they were adventuresome, they were funny, they were just really great women to get to know. And they had all different kinds of life experiences. They had families or some stayed. They just did all kinds of different things. It was just fantastic. Well, and then they were so excited about us because now finally what they had worked so hard for and fought so hard for to do during the war, now women were being able to do that again. And I remember a significant event that As I mentioned, I was the only girl in my squadron. There were probably four or five others at McGuire in the reserves, and there were some on the active duty. But, you know, you were always onesies and twosies, and you just wanted to work for me. I wanted to work hard. I wanted to be respected for doing a good job. And this whole piece of being an all-female crew or being a first this or first that took less significance to me because I just wanted to be respected for doing a good job, you know. And I remember early in 1983, it was in May, there was a 141, C-141 cargo airplane from McGuire that flew to Europe and back, and it was an all-female crew. They got so much publicity. They were on the Today Show. They got all this. And some of us were kind of wondering, okay, what? why? What's the big deal? And why are we making big? And it wasn't until I spoke with some of my friends who were the wasps who reminded me that it was a big deal because during the war, they were not allowed to fly across the Atlantic Ocean as a woman. They would have to only get to Canada. They would have to stop, give it the airplane to a guy, and then a guy could fly it. And so it hit home to me that it was important that women were finally able to do what they had always trained to do and not be held back just because that they were a woman. And so it was a very valuable lesson for me and 
then I began to appreciate that a little bit more. Right. And one of the, I think, episode three of this podcast, when we did a discussion about the wasps, Uh we talked about with Diane in that interview, there was a crew that of wasps that was ready to go across the Atlantic and were on their way. And then once the army found out, they grounded them, like said, stop, turn around. (laughs) You have to come back. Yeah. You wouldn't be possibly able to find your way. (laughs) I know it's kind of an interesting thing. And I'm glad that you have that story to share as well, that, you know, we've come so far in that regard. So did you know about the wasps growing up? When was the first you heard of them? Um, I think it was probably when I went to officer training school. I remember we had to do a report, and I remember doing a report on them. And But at that point, I already knew that I was going off to pilot training um, and the flight screening program. I think when I got more interested in pursuing, that's when I learned more about it. Right, because at that point, was the program still classified or had it been declassified? It probably had been declassified because that would have been... It was about 30 years after. Right, because this would have been in um, 79 that I enlisted. So, yeah, 1980. So it's, it was all pretty relatively new. Right. So there would have been no reason for you to learn about it in schools growing up because oh, it was classified. Right. And there probably wasn't as much emphasis in general. No, I think you're correct. Hmm. History has a way of changing as we get older, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, I hear that a lot. And one of the things that personally, I I look at it more as we just learn new, hear new voices, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the WASP is a perfect, it's actually one that I use personally when people talk about, you know, people are trying to change history with, you know, why do you need to read a book written today about World War II as opposed to one 40 years ago? Well, we just have more information right. now. I mean, WASP being an example where, If you were a historian writing a comprehensive history of World War II in 1965, you would have had no access to those documents. You would have had, if you knew about them, you could reach out to the women individually, probably. Right. But you would have no access to anything in the archives and and places that historians tend to go. Interesting. So you get, our understanding of it shifts as we, as things are declassified, as new stories come to light. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's why I think it's so important to have people like in museums and historians who are willing to go and dig out those details or those facts, or if you meet somebody and then, wait a minute, what's this story about? You know, and then, like you said, you get to expand upon it, definitely. Over the course of your career, you worked closely with some of the wasps. Are there any that you got to know better than others? Yes, there's a couple of them that stand out. Sarah Hayden was the clerk for our WMA group. And in the very beginning, I was the treasurer for the Women Military Aviators. So Sarah and I had a great opportunity to know each other over the years. Sadly, she passed away within the last couple of years, but she was instrumental in helping us get started. Another wasp that has a very special place in my heart is Dawn Seymour. And we had the occasion of, well, we saw each other often at the Women in Aviation Conference, but then we also had some really close interactions over the years in the early 1990s when they were dedicating the Women in Service Memorial at Arlington Cemetery. We had an all-female crew that flew a 141 that was part of the dedication ceremony, and Dawn Seymour got to ride in the C-141 with us. Oh, she was just so delightful, and she was so excited to be in this airplane with us. 
And then uh, there was an opportunity that I was a part of a panel here at the Museum for Women Fly, and Dawn was also one of the speakers. So once again, we're on the same stage together. And then finally, when the WASPs were granted their Congressional Medal in 2010, all the other WASPs were given the gold medal as well. And there were members of the military who were the ones who were able to present those gold medals to the individual WASPs. And I was fortunate enough to um, be able to give Dawn Seymour her gold medal. So part of uh, that event was also very special. And she, unfortunately, is also gone. She was able to live to 100 and died within a couple of months of turning 100. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. This is part one of a two-parter, so subscribe to our podcast to get the next episode where Peggy will talk a bit more about her own career and what happened when she a woman, followed orders and flew into a designated combat zone in a time when women were officially not allowed anywhere near conflict. If you want to learn more about the WASP program, check out the show notes for links to two previous episodes of our podcast featuring this topic, including an episode where we interviewed an actual WASP, which was conducted by two of the young women in the museum's middle school education programs. You can also check out our WASP exhibit in the museum's personal courage wing during your next trip to the museum. And our docents regularly conduct tours of the museum focusing on women in aviation. You can find a link to plan your next trip to the museum in this episode's show notes. If you like what you heard, please rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you downloaded us from. And please share it out with friends. We appreciate your help spreading the word. You can contact the show at podcast at museumofflight.org. Until next time, this is your host, Sean Mobley, saying to everyone out there on that good earth, we'll see you out there, folks.